Colossians chapter 4 this morning. Hudson Taylor was one of the first Protestant missionaries to China, but he was the first to be sensitive to the Chinese people and their culture as he sought to bring the truth of Christ to them. In fact, he uh, went on to not only do this himself, but to teach many other missionaries this same approach of uh, having the same hairstyle, the same clothing as, as those in uh, China, in the areas they were going, uh, to show that they were willing to, uh, to go and to be like them and to live like them in order to share the truth with them. And in fact, Hudson Taylor uh, was such a pioneer in the mission work that it was not just himself that, that uh, he devoted to missions, but he also very wisely trained up uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of other missionaries uh, to go along with him and, and to, to fan out into the vast region of China. In fact, he founded an entire mission agency originally just designed to penetrate the country of, uh, of China called the China, the China Inland Mission. And one of the things that he did was, buy, was establish these what he called mission stations throughout the country that would kind of act as sending centers for the missionaries. And there was one particular station at one point that was uh, especially blessed. They were seeing a lot of um, Chinese people being converted to the gospel through the missionary that was working at this station far and above all of the other uh, mission stations. And so in the midst of his work of oversight, Hudson Taylor went and talked to this missionary and he wanted to know why was this individual having so much success and what he found frankly was nothing special. He did not seem to be uh, any more devoted. He did not seem to be any more skilled than any of the other missionaries. And so there was no apparent reason why he was having such success far and above the, other, the others in his area. Nevertheless, it was um, not too long afterwards that, that Hudson Taylor was back in England on a speaking tour, seeking to both raise funds for the Chiland in, Inland Mission as well as encourage more people to come as missionaries. And it was while he was speaking on this tour that a man came up to him after one of his uh, speaking engagements and began to ask about that particular station that had been so blessed. And so Taylor began to tell him about the station, about uh, how the work was going there. And then the man began to ask some very specific questions, even some personal questions about the missionary. And Hudson Taylor said, what, why are you asking all of these questions? And it turns out the man that was asking the questions was in fact the old college roommate of the man who was working as a missionary in China at this particular station. And he said it had been years before when he found out that he was going into mission work that he committed to pray daily for his roommate and his friend while he was in China on the field. And Taylor in his book writes that it was then, it was then that he knew the reason for the success of this missionary and his station. Last week we began a, a new sermon series looking at the idea of gospel growth, that is building a church on the proclamation of the gospel. And we tried last week to show the big picture of gospel growth. And this morning we want to focus on the first essential component of this process, evangelism. Specifically what we want to see is how we should both be praying for God to work as well as preparing ourselves to be a part of the work. In other words, what we want to see this morning is that prayer 
is an essential component to speaking God's word in evangelism to seeing gospel growth take place. In order to see this, we want to look at Colossians chapter 4 and Paul's words to us in verses 2 through 6. I would encourage you to follow along as I read. Paul writes, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of God. From this passage, Paul begins to draw together for us the connection between prayer and speaking God's words for the salvation of sinners. And what emerges are three actions that we should take, three basic commitments that, should, that we should engage in as we seek to bring about God's plan for gospel growth. Three very simple things. First, we should pray for gospel openings. We should pray for gospel openings. Paul says again, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now Paul doesn't tell the Colossians, hey, you better start praying. He says, no, continue in it. In other words, they were already a praying people. And he says, continue in it with steadfastness. In other words, he goes on to tell them what kind of prayer they should be continuing. And he tells them what their prayer life should look like. And the first thing he says is that it should be marked by this idea of steadfastness. The original verb behind this phrase, continue steadfastly, uh, came to be used of a boat that was already prepped and ready for sailing. People used to not only go out as fishermen, they used to rent boats to fishermen. So there were some fishermen in, in Paul's day, they did not actually own a boat, they just owned nets. And they would actually go, they would pay a little bit of money, take the boat out, get their, their catch, come back in, and then they would go sell it. And there was a, a series of boats that were always prepped and ready to go at a moment's notice because what you didn't want is a fisherman showing up and saying, hey, I'm ready to go out for the catch of the day. And, the, and say, well, you've got to give me about 50 or 20 minutes to get the boat ready. He'd be like, nah, I'm going over here to rent this guy's boat. So they were prepped and ready. They were, they were continuing steadfastly, as it were. And so uh, what, from this uh, basic idea comes the sense of being devoted to something and always being found busily engaged in it. And Paul says that is the kind of praying that should mark your life. Where did Paul get this? Well, frankly, he just got it from Jesus. That's the kind of thing that Jesus himself taught about how we should pray. He taught his disciples in Luke 18 that they ought always to pray and not give up. In fact, in Luke 11, Jesus tells a parable of a man to illustrate this very point. He says, imagine a man who goes to his neighbor's house and it's midnight and he whacks on the door and says, hey, I need get up, I need some bread. We've had some friends come over unexpectedly and we've got nothing to eat. And Jesus says, uh, the, the, the neighbor yells out, we're in bed. It's midnight, dude. We're all tucked in. The kids are in bed. Go away. Come back in the morning. The guy says, no, we've got company. You've got, you've got to do something. We've got to be a good host. You've got to give me some bread. And the guy's like, go away. We're, all, it's, 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 we're asleep. It's too late. It's midnight. Go away. And Jesus says, the man just keeps persisting. We've got to give us some bread. Come on, be a good neighbor. Help a brother out here. Come on, open up. 
And he says, Jesus says, finally, because of the man's persistence, the neighbor will get up and he will give him some bread. It's like, just, just shut up and go to, go to sleep. You're going to wake the baby. Get out of here. It's the middle of the night. Now, Jesus says, if the neighbor is going to do that, and a man's persistence, he says, how much more should you persist in prayer to your heavenly Father? I mean, here is a God who's never tucked in for bed, who, who never gets tired, who never turns out the lights to go to sleep, who is never going to be annoyed with you asking over and over again for the kinds of things that he wants to give you. He says, he's your heavenly Father. What father doesn't love to give gifts to his children? Melinda's all the time telling me, they don't need anything else just because you see something in the store that you think they'll like doesn't mean you need to buy it for them. I say, okay, okay, you're right. Well, what father doesn't want to just give gifts to the children? Look at this, it's a new book, look at this, it's a new game, it's great, it's great, it's great. So much more, he says, with God. Persist in going to Him. He says, if you ask and you seek and you knock, then it will be given to you. You will find and it will be opened to you. Persist in prayer with God for He delights to answer His children. That's what Paul is saying here. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Furthermore, he says, don't just ask for things though. If nothing else, prayer is asking for things. Going to God and asking for the grace that we need for this life. But it's also more than that. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. In the New Testament, being watchful is always connected to our being aware of the times in which we live, the time between Jesus' first coming and His second coming, where the decisive work has been done, but all things have not yet been fulfilled. The new heaven and the new earth has broken into this old creation, but it's not yet fully here. And so, as God's people, we stand with, with one foot in two worlds, one in this old world and one in the new world. And what that means is that we've been freed from the power of sin, We've been freed from the penalty of sin. Nevertheless, we still struggle with sin because our hearts are still sinful. And so being watchful means be aware of, of the fact that people are watching you and you've got to live a certain way in between this first and second coming of Jesus Christ. Be mindful of temptations that are out there to sin and seek to avoid them. And in all of this, Paul says, be thankful to God. We're told to continually go to a God who delights to hear our prayers and more than that, delights to answer Him. When we pray, asking for grace to navigate life well, pursuing godliness as the day of Christ draws near and near, we know God will hear and answer our prayers with love and wisdom, giving us what we need and withholding from us what we don't need. And Paul says, as we think about that, we should be thankful Thankful for the God who hears prayers. Thankful for the God who always answers them according to His perfect wisdom. That's the, that's the everyday life of prayer that God's people should have, that we should have. But then Paul gives them something specific to pray about. He says at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul is asking the Colossians to remember him in their prayers, specifically that here would be open doors for him to share the gospel. That is opportunities that he can take to tell people about Jesus Christ. And Paul wants to speak clearly in those opportunities. In other words, he wants to not only take those opportunities, but he wants to do so in a way that the message is clearly understood by the person he is communicating with. Now think about that just for a second. Here is Paul. He's an apostle 
called to salvation and apostleship by the risen Christ himself. A glory so intense and so bright that knocks him blind off of his horse as he's going to persecute Christians. He, is, he, he calls himself the least of the apostles, one born out of time, and yet he is specifically tasked to go to the Gentile world. Through his letters and his writing in the book of Acts, we see he is, a, he, is a, he is a man who is uncannily committed to declaring the glory of Christ, even allowing himself to experience the fellowship of his sufferings in doing so. He is a pastor, a church planter, a theologian, and missionary extraordinaire. And what does he say? Hey, pray for me. Pray for me because I need it. Pray for me that I would have an opportunity to proclaim Christ, that I would not forsake my calling to proclaim Christ. I know that Satan has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. He has appeared to close the door to them and their salvation. But we know that God is the one who opens doors. He is the one who removes the scales from his eyes, even as he revealed the scales of blindness from my own eyes, and he can impart life. Paul understands there's a profound connection between prayer and the proclamation of Christ. In fact, David Helm, uh, a pastor out of Chicago, shows us that when you read the gospel in Acts, it is almost always in the context of prayer that people come to a deeper knowledge of Jesus. Let me give you a couple of examples. In John chapter 11, Jesus' friend Lazarus has died. And Jesus is outside the tomb. He's standing there and a, a large group of people have gathered around wondering, what is Jesus going to do? We've seen him heal people. We've seen him feed people for miracles. What is he going to do now that his friend has died? And we see Jesus weeps over Lazarus, the text says. But then he, he goes to the tomb and he begins to pray out loud and even says, I am praying this not because I think you're not going to hear me, Father, for I know you always hear me, but I'm praying for the sake of those who do not yet believe you have sent me. And then he calls into the tomb and calls Lazarus back to life from the dead. And John tells us in verse 45, many of the Jews therefore who had come with Mary and had not seen what he and had seen what he did believed in him. Jesus prays and he says, "Open the eyes of the unbelievers who do not know me," and God opens the eyes that they may believe. In Luke chapter 3, people are coming out to be baptized by John. Jesus is baptized and Luke says as soon as he is baptized, Jesus begins praying. And it is while he is still praying that the Holy Spirit descends upon him and God speaks out from heaven, this is my beloved son. So what happens? While Jesus is praying, curious unbelievers who know it very badly to repent before God are all there being baptized and they hear God from heaven say, Jesus is my son. One last one from Luke chapter 9. Jesus is with his disciples. He is praying alone, but when he is done, he turns to them and asks, who do the crowd say that I am? And a couple people give some different answers and then Peter says, you are the Christ of God that is the Messiah, the Savior we have been looking for. And in case we don't draw the connection in our minds between Jesus' prayer and Peter's confession, Matthew in his gospel says that Jesus told Peter, look, don't get a big head, Peter, because it wasn't your own wisdom, it wasn't your own flesh and blood that revealed this to you, it was my Father in heaven. In other words, it was through Jesus' prayers for his people that spiritual sight came even to his disciples. Do you see the point here? Do you see what Paul is saying? Look, I'm always about the business of evangelizing. I'm, I'm in prison because I was evangelizing, but you need to pray for me. 
You must pray that our work may continue and have fruit because ultimately God is the one who gives spiritual life. Therefore, we must go to Him and ask Him to give it. This is why you should not just pray for your pastors or other Christian leaders, what Paul asked the Colossians to pray for him, but all of us should be praying for one another and for ourselves that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ that we ought to make it clear, which is how we ought to speak. Eric Simmons is a pastor at Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland. And in an article published online a few years back, he wrote about his life and coming to grips with this connection between prayer and evangelism and living a lifestyle of evangelism. He says that it was really when he began to pray seriously these verses that God would start opening doors and that he would take them. It was about that time that he was traveling across the country with his friend named Andrew and they were wanting to go to Rocky Mountain National Park to go camping. But in the middle of June, God decided to send 10 inches of snow there so they couldn't get in. Instead, they had to go to another little town called Grand Lake, Colorado. And he says as they drove in, they were dead tired, they were starving, and there was nothing open, nothing there except for an old-time saloon. And they looked at each other and said, well, at least they got food, so they went in. Here's what he says. When Andrew and I walked through the double doors, it felt like the record player scratched to a stop. Everybody turned to look at us, and I think they knew we were not from around those parts. Andrew and I hurried over to the corner doing our best not to make eye contact. Nears was a group of about six people. They probably had 20 shot glasses on their table, and they were toasting one shot at a time. One of the gentlemen toasted to Jesus Christ and Satan his brother. Goom! Now, I had prayed that morning for an opportunity to share the gospel, but this is not what I had in mind. I looked at Andrew and said, you know what? I have no clue what to do. I just know he just toasted Jesus Satan, and I know I just prayed this morning for an opportunity. So Simmons had a track in his pocket, and he walked over. He said, you know, I heard you toast Jesus, and this is about Jesus. You might want to read it. I'll be over there if you have any questions. Come on over. Simmons said he dropped the track on the table, and then he practically ran back to the table and started shoveling the food in because, frankly, he was scared to death, and he just wanted to get out of there as fast as he could. But sure enough, Kevin, the guy who toasted his girlfriend, came over, and they began to talk about Jesus. Simmons says, Kevin was belligerent, angry, and aggressive, but his girlfriend was open. She was sincere in asking questions about Jesus. Simmons says, God used my prayers from that morning. He sent two idiots to Colorado, made it snow in Rocky Mountain National Park in June so that we couldn't camp, led us to a saloon, and created an opportunity for us to tell this lady about Jesus. We got to pray with her that night as she professed Jesus. We left that saloon in awe. Paul says we should pray for gospel openings. And he also says that we should live for gospel witness. We should live for gospel witness. In the context of the letter, Paul transitions from his personal situation to a general principle for all Christians. In verse 5 he says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Here's another basic instruction for the Christian life. It's just, this is just what Christians should always be doing and should know to do. But in this context, it flows right out of the request to pray for open doors for the gospel. I think Paul is thinking about what kind of life we should be living in front of the world as we are seeking opportunities to tell people about Jesus Christ. What are the unbelievers around you seeing when they look at you? When you live their life, what do they go away thinking? When, talk, Paul talks, when he talks about walking in wisdom, he is thinking about knowing and doing the will of God. 
He is, has in His mind as God's people. We are continually ourselves being exposed to God's Word so that more and more our minds are transformed so that we know how to live in a way that pleases God. And even as our minds are transformed, so also more and more our hearts are transformed as we are exposed to the Word of God. So we not only know what we should do, we want to do what we should do. There is both a head knowledge, as we say, and a heart affection. We know the right thing and we want to do the right thing. The goal is that in any situation, God's people will be able to know how to live and conduct themselves in a manner that brings God glory. And again, Paul is clear, this kind of life is to be lived before what he calls outsiders, those who are not part of the church. Now think about that for a minute. Implicitly, where does that say you should be? With outsiders, right? I mean, to be frank, I think many of us don't think that way. I think if we had our choice, we would like to live and work just with Christians in a whole country filled up just with Christians. I mean, I think we think that way sometimes, don't we? But that's not the calling for God's people. That's, in fact, the opposite calling for us. We are always to be seeking out unbelievers, outsiders from the kingdom, seeking to live and work in and among them, seeking to befriend them, seeking to love them for the very purpose of making them insiders, of bringing them from darkness into light, from lost and condemnation to life and salvation. But how we live our lives can either help or hinder that process. We must ask, is our life showing them an attractiveness of life in Christ or is it denying what we say we believe? Again, from the same article that we just heard from, the testimony of Eric Simmons, he says this, When a person who does not know Jesus scratches the surface of our life in witness, our, our witnesses, our actions, our motives, our decisions, as well as how we handle our money, our time, our energy, our pleasure, and most importantly of all, our sin, that person should be struck by how glorious Jesus is and how amazing the salvation He offers is. A transformed life through the Spirit's power is one of the most strategic and effective tools for evangelism. Paul says that's the kind of life that, that you should be living, that all Christians should be living. When someone looks at you, they will, they will see there's something different about this person who claims to be a Christian, that we will be walking within wisdom towards outsiders. But here's the reality. That kind of life doesn't just happen by accident. You don't just wake up one morning and, oh, I'm walking in wisdom towards outsiders now. And everybody says, boy, that was a good night's sleep you had. What happened? He says, no. No, in order to do that, he says, you must make the best use of the time. Now, some translations have the phrase, redeem the time. The point is not about redemption in the sense of salvation, but redemption in the sense of economics. Redeeming the time has in mind the image of buying it up not letting any of it get away, which is why I think my translation wisely says, make the best use of the time. You know, when we had our, uh, as I was reading this, one of the things that came to my mind in the image was when we had our, uh, our yard sale, rummage sale for, for missions, and uh, it was, I think it was really towards the end of the sale time, some guy came in and he found these frames that we had. And he was just like, oh, this is like exactly what I'm looking for. And so he bought like five of them and he went up and then he took him out of the car, and then a few minutes later, I think he might have even left, he came back, and he said, do you got any more of those frames? And he's looking around, he buys some more frames, he leaves, and he comes back again. And it was just like this idea of, he's not letting any of those frames get away from him. He is just buying them up, uh, keeping them all for himself. And that's the image that Paul is trying to convey here when it comes to how we use our time. 
Paul says in this context of being wise with outsiders, are we making the best use of our time with them? Have we taken every opportunity to live before them in a godly way, even opening our mouth and sharing the gospel as often as we can? Now, what does that look like practically? I mean, what's a real-world example of that? Well, consider Paul's situation. Where is he writing from? We just read it in verse 3, of which I am in prison. Current, present, active, indicative, okay? He is writing from prison, saying, I am here because of the gospel. Now, frankly, if I was in prison, even for preaching, I could be, I can imagine about a hundred different things I would be thinking and wanting to do than sitting around thinking, now how can I make the best use of my time here for the sake of the gospel? I mean, think all the more about Paul's situation. He's only enduring hardship. He's not at all comfortable. His freedom is hindered. He's probably not being well cared for. He's not being well fed, but he's not complaining. He's not moaning. He's not self-absorbed with his problems. Instead, he's thinking, now, how can I use this for the gospel? And as he goes to scratch his head with the other, the chains clink around his wrists. How can I use this for the gospel? Now, understand, Paul's a real-world individual. He's not some... He's not some character in a novel. He knows the temptation is is there to be self-absorbed. He knows the temptation is to check out mentally and just think, woe is me, God, can't you get me out of here? And that's why he says, look, pray for me. Pray for open doors and I will speak clearly as I ought. Paul says, I am here, I am in chains, but I ought to continue the work of gospel growth. I ought to continue the work of proclaiming Christ. I ought to continue the work of apostleship to which I am called. But I know there's a temptation to give up, so pray for me. Pray for me that I will continue to do what I'm supposed to do. That's the example that's before us. And again, we just have to say, is that our experience? If you're like me, probably the answer is no. We're far more concerned with our ease of life, with illness or finances or lousy neighbors or bad managers at work, that we're far too preoccupied to ever think about pursuing a godly life in those contexts, let alone sharing Christ. Nevertheless, if we're really God's people, if we've really been redeemed by the blood of Christ, then Paul's example is the one that we should be seeking to imitate. Obedience to his commands here in Colossians 4 should be our prayerful goal. It was Spurgeon who said every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. And being a missionary in this sense of bearing witness to the gospel to those around us is living a godly life that gives authenticity to our message. That is what Paul is calling to. This is what he says should be basic to everyone who claims the name of Christ. We should pray for gospel openings. We should live for gospel witness. And finally, we should speak for gospel conversion. We should speak for gospel conversion. What have we seen Paul say so far? We've seen that we are to be praying for God to be at work in the gospel, bringing faith to the faithless. We've seen that our prayers should be focused in part on gospel growth, specifically the beginning of that growth, people hearing and believing the gospel. And as we are praying... As we ourselves, uh, we, we should be, as we're praying, we should be seeking to be living distinctively before the world that God has set us apart from. Not so much in specific checkmarkish kinds of ways, like I don't smoke, drink, or chew, and go with girls that do, with, go with girls that do kind of stuff. Well, that's easy for me to say, right? Uh, no, but just this general sense of a, of a pursuit of God in our life. 
We should be so God-intoxicated that our feelings and our thinkings and our living should be markedly different from the world around us. And Paul says, if you're doing all those things, if you're praying and you're living the way that you should, people are going to see it and they're going to start asking you questions. They're going to say, why, why do you live like that? Why can't you come over on Sunday nights? Why can't you come over on Sunday mornings? Why can't you stay late on Saturday nights? You know, you talk about Jesus a lot. What's the big deal? What's this Christianity stuff all about? I mean, is it, I mean, you know, isn't that just your opinion? You've got Buddhism and Hinduism. You've got Islam. You've got Mormonism. Uh, why Christianity? Well, what's the big deal? People are going to take notice and they're going to ask you questions. And Paul says, you've got to be able to answer those questions the way that you should. In other words, you need to be ready not only with the gospel, with the message of Christ's death for sinners and of His resurrection from the dead, but he also says you have to be ready with the gospel to be conveyed in words and with an attitude that will be beneficial to those asking the questions. Listen to what he says in verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You see, it is, it is very easy to be condemning towards sinners, isn't it? I mean, when, when you see someone and you're just thinking, man, they've made a mess of their life, it is easy for that, for that, you know, uh, that bearded Pharisee to rise up in your heart and say, look how much better you are than them. I mean, you, you don't struggle with that kind of sin. I mean, why are you even bothering to be around that person? You're just thinking, yeah, I'm something. You know, God's happy to have me. You know, that, that's, the, that's, that's how the mindset we, we easily slip into, a sense of superiority because we know the truth, because we have a, a measure of holiness. And Paul is saying, don't be like that. Paul's saying, don't be like that. He says, don't just, you know, first of all, he's not saying brush aside sin as if it's no big deal. Brush aside ungodliness and just ignore it. Trust me, he's not saying that. But what he is also not saying is blow off the sinner. Ignore them, look down on them, condemn them, speak haughtily towards them, put them in your place with your words. That's not what he says. He says, look, just as you were shown love and mercy by a gracious God who called you to himself when you didn't deserve it, so show that to other people. Be gracious with your words. More than that, he says, let them be seasoned with salt. Now, what in the world does that mean? Usually when we think of someone having salty speech, it's not something we want to imitate. In this context, the idea of saltiness is something like wit or winsomeness. There should be a kind of joy and care in your words that draws people in rather than, turn, rather than turns them away. There's a real sense in which someone said, regardless of whether or not you're a good dancer, regardless of, not, regardless of whether or not you know all the best jokes and you dress the coolest, a Christian should always be the person people want to sit with and talk to at a party. There should just be a magnetism from, in this sense, your graciousness and your saltiness so that even if people are mad about you because you say, Jesus is the only way to heaven, they still want to be your friend. That's the kind of personality that Paul said should come out with your words. Let me give you an example. Again, I was reading this week. There was a, there was a man named Mike who lives in New England. And um, on one occasion, he was supposed to be leading an evangelistic Bible study at a lo local college campus. And he had reserved the room. Uh, and when they came at the appropriate time, there were still some, some students seen around, all gothed up. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, goth being the kind of people that, you know, they dye their hair black 
and they wear the black eyeliner and sometimes they paint their fingertips black and they got the long coats and everything's black, black, black and blah, you know, Marilyn Manson types, you know. And, uh, you know, without any kind of uh, gruffness or whatever, he just came in and said, hey, you know, it's our time to use the room. You, you guys, you know, you guys mind if we go ahead and, and start using it? Well, one of the guys screamed at him, No! And Mike says, he ripped open his shirt, revealing his bare chest, and his girlfriend came over and jabbed a stick pin right in it. Now, what do you do in a situation like that? <laughs> Besides putting your eyeballs back in your... Well, it got, it, got, it got worse, because when the guy comes over and gets right in this guy's face and says, I want to eat your soul! What, what does Mike say? He said, well, don't fill up on soul, because we've got plenty of pizza. Now, what do you think happened? I'll tell you what happened. This guy's friends just completely fell out of their chairs laughing. And, and it, was, it was the kind of spirit-led, gracious, salty remark that just completely turned this, this crazy situation completely on its head. And it so engendered this guy with these goss who couldn't have cared less about this guy in any other context. They not only stayed for the free pizza, they stayed for the Bible study. Now, again, that would have been real easy just to, to say, you know, oh, well, I'm out of here. What is this guy going to do? He's going to stick me next. You know, should I rip my, ch- you know, my shirt off? No, don't do that. You know, should, you know, should I call the campus security and say, hey, get these guys out of my room? No, 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 no. There was just this gracious, salty engagement that said, hey, dude, it's all, it's all cool. You want to just stay and have some pizza? And it was that kind of attitude towards an unbeliever that, that engendered them towards you. And if they're engendered towards you, that means they're engendered towards Christ because that's who you're supposed to be living like and talking like. Paul says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This morning we've seen Paul's encouragement to live godly lives as you prayerfully speak God's words, so that unbelieving people might become believers in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's the message that Paul gave to the Colossians. That's the message I have tried to convey to you this morning. Now, here's the question. What are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that message? It's not enough just to hear it and think that's a good idea. A week from next Thursday, how, what are you going to be doing to live this out? Well, since we're prone to forget, I know I am, pastors have decided to borrow a tool from Holy Trinity Church in Chicago. You should have got it in your bulletin. If for some reason it fell out and you're missing it, you can see us after. We'll be glad to give this to you. It says 3-2-1 initiative on this little card. And here's what we want you to do with this tool. We want you to pick three people that you know are not saved. Three people that you know, if they were to die tonight, they would spend an eternity in hell. I want you to write their names down on this card. We want you to pick three people. We want you to write their names on this card. And we want you to keep this card. I want you to pray for those people every single day that God would open a door for them to hear the gospel, that they would hear it, that they would understand it, and that God would allow them to believe it and be saved. So this is where the 321 comes in. Praying for three unbelieving people over two years that God, with the hopes that God would bring one to saving faith in Christ. Now how easy is that? that? That's all we're asking you to do. Pick three unbelievers, commit to pray for them daily for two years with the hopes that one of them will be saved. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or you're unsure if you're a Christian, this is not for you. What you need to do is write your name down on person one. And you need to pray for yourself and say, God, help me to see who Jesus is. Help me to understand that He died for sin, that He is the Savior of all humanity because only through Him can people be made right 
with you. God, help me to see who Jesus is. Help me to understand the gospel and help me to believe. That's what we need to do. But for the rest of us, for the rest of us, for those of us that are Christians, we need to to be committed to praying for people to come to understand the gospel. Now, here's the reality, too, you've got to be prepared for. You might be, you might be one of the people that gets to share the gospel with somebody on this card, okay? Uh, the, the pastor that I heard, it, you know, talking about this said he put three people that he, frankly, didn't care for, that he saw every day in his neighborhood on this list for two reasons. A, because he needed Christ, and B, because it meant he would be forced to love them like he should, okay? I already know my three people on this list. I don't know if you already know your three people that you want to put down. So what I want to do, I want to give you a, an opportunity right now to take out a pen and to put this card before you, and I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray that God brings to your mind some people to put down on this list and that He gives you the encouragement to commit to pray daily for these people that they might come to faith in Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about this before we pray. I want you to put this card where you're not going to lose it, first of all. All right? That means when you leave here, it goes in your jacket pocket, it goes in your wallet, it goes in your purse, something. But then when you get home, I want you to put it somewhere where you're going to see it every day. Okay? Whether you, you know, uh, put a piece of tape on it and stick it under your rearview mirror in your car, or you stick it in your bathroom shaving mirror, or you know, next to the phone, or in, on your computer, wherever you look every day, you, you put this here. But if you miss a day, don't panic. Don't freak out. Don't say, oh, it's ruined it. I've ruined it. I gotta... No, 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 no. Just, just get the card and just start praying again. All right? But I want you to imagine. We have about 50 members here. Let's say we all commit to pray. And let's say in two years God responds and we have 50 new Christians that get saved and are a part of this church. And let's say they join us as we continue to pray. And we pray for another two years. What are we going to have? We're going to have 100 new Christians. And then in two more years, 2017, we could have 400 new Christians simply by being obedient to God's Word and praying. And that's just if God saves one every two years. How big is your vision of God? Can you envision by 2017 400 people at this church? Can you envision more? Jesus told his disciples, when it comes to the salvation of sinful men, all things are possible with God. So let's pray to that God now. Heavenly Father, we have before us a card that is in no way magical. It is in no way the height of spirituality. It is not an indicator of our faithfulness before you, God. It is simply a tool to help us be more faithful in your calling on our lives. God, you have called us to be in prayer for unbelievers that they might be saved. God, you have called us through the example and instruction of Paul to pray that we ourselves might have open doors for the gospel. God, we know that your stance towards humanity is one of graciousness, accepting all who would trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So, Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us the kind of burning desire that Paul expressed in Romans 10 this deep desire for his own countrymen that they might come to know their Savior, their Messiah Christ. Father, help us as well to have a passionate desire for the lost. Father, may this help us to be more committed in praying for them. Father, maybe even use us to be the means by which one of these people hear the gospel. And above all, God, we pray that through our prayers, you would help them to hear about Christ and believe.
God, our desire is for sinful men and women and children to be made right with you. God, we pray that we would do this not pridefully, thinking that this will make us more spiritual and more holy, even more holy than those who don't do this, but God, we would do this with right motives, desiring nothing more than for people who are in darkness to come to light. God, we ask all this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.